And that's the focus of our time in the Word this morning. If you turn back to our text in Hebrews chapter 13, if you'll turn there, and again, that's page uh, 1009, I think I said 1003 earlier, and that Bible is provided as page 1009. And we are coming this morning to the closing chapter in the uh, book of Hebrews. And if you are a guest here wants you to know that last many, many weeks that we've been making a journey through this wonderful, wonderful letter in the New Testament, uh, the book of Hebrews. And it has been a journey, and I'm grateful for the things the Lord has allowed us to enjoy on this journey. I've received wonderful encouragement about what God has done and things that the Holy Spirit has revealed. Uh, and we said when we began the journey... Uh, a long time ago that uh, as we made this journey, it would be like there's just gold on the ground, just nuggets right there on the ground for us. But also there'd be some that we had to dig out. And we've had to do some digging, right? But there's great treasure in this wonderful, wonderful epistle of God's Word. But journey is a good word as we think about the letter to Hebrews because it emphasizes a journey, a journey in faith, a journey as we are continuing forward for the Lord, encircled as we are, as Hebrews 12 tells us, with this great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, who have run their race, and now they are in the presence of the Lord. And they are witnesses to us. They're not looking down at heaven on, from heaven on us, that they are witnesses to us that we can follow on in the same kind of faith. And that is what this last passage is about. How do we walk this journey? How do we run this race of faith as we are headed toward our final destination? And I loved what we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 22, rather two weeks ago. Last week was our anniversary focus, but two weeks ago it says that you have come to Mount Zion. Now, we might say, well, I thought we were on our way to Zion. Aren't we like the Bible says? And then that song says, we are marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. And, you know, this is the wonderful, wonderful dichotomy of being a Christian. It, we live in this already but not yet tension. The already is this. We have come to Mount Zion. We are already part of the kingdom of God. If we are followers of Jesus... We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom already, and on our journey home, it's wonderful to know that heaven is our home, right? When we get to heaven, we will have a title there because we are truly entitled through Jesus, who is our only title for anything in heaven. But our names are written in the Lamb's book of life if we're believers in Jesus. And it'd be an amazing thing to recognize that as we are making our journey, it's a homeward journey. We're already there in the spirit. The reality of life in Christ is already ours. But the tension is physically. As we live our lives, it's not yet. We're already there in terms of our inheritance, but we're not yet there in terms of our experience. And so this passage of Scripture, chapter 13 of Hebrews, is all about how we who are already citizens of the heavenly kingdom 
are to conduct ourselves as citizens here on this earthly journey toward our heavenly home. And so what we see in chapter 13 of Hebrews is really a focus of what it means to live our life on the road. Life on the road to heaven. How should we live that life? What should our focus be? And that's the entire message of chapter 13. Now this morning, as we looked at these first six verses, I want you to understand that as we walk this journey of faith, there is an overarching principle that is to guide our daily lives, and there are four guiding practices. There's a principle that's overarching as we make our journey toward our heavenly home. But this morning we saw that that principle should be lived out in four practices. It's where that which is our belief coincides with our behavior. Our behavior. Now let's look at this. Verse 1 tells us that there's one overarching principle to guide us on our journey home. And what is that overarching principle? Verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now notice brotherly love here. It, it means, as, as we know from the Greek, Philadelphia is the word. That's literally, it's not just a city in Pennsylvania. The word here is Philadelphia. It comes from two words, phile, which means love, and adelphos, which means brothers. So this is love of brothers or sisters. It's the love of those with whom we have a relationship in Jesus Christ. Now this is very interesting. As the Lord here through this letter is telling us how to live our lives on our journey home, it's interesting the word that's used here for love is not the highest form of love. There's, there's two key words that are used in the New Testament for love. And the highest form of love is not this word. It's the word maybe you're familiar with, agape. Agape. And agape means a self-sacrificing love. Self-sacrificing love. That's the highest form of love. That's a, the highest love that's expressed in the New Testament. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is not agape, but it's the word phile, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Brotherly love. Now, why is that? Because we want to be reminded, and God wants to remind us here, that while we're on our journey home, we have earthly relationships. We have earthly relationships among brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We all have our personal journey of faith. People come to faith personally, individually. But friends, no one makes the journey in faith in a solitary way. Because we are all part of a family. When you begin to follow the Lord, 
You're not walking a solitary journey. You're walking in relationship with others. There's Christian community. And this is emphasized over and over and over in the New Testament. That yes, though we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that relationship is shared with others in community. Real people. People like us. And that's not easy, right? Someone has said this, to dwell above with saints in love. Oh, won't that be glory? But to live below with saints we know. Now that's another story, (laughs) right? We're, We're just not that great. You know, I've told you before, the Lord's never had the dream team. You know, this is the bad news bears right here. That we're, we're it. And so it's important that as we live our lives, we live our lives in Christian community based on brotherly love. Brotherly love. Not too long ago, I read an article Amazing. It was about two people who were working in a factory up east. And they became friends as they were working on the assembly line together. And it was a man and a woman. They they got to know each other and they, they became friends. They began talking about their lives, their families. And after several months, as they got acquainted with each other and knew each other's story, they were absolutely dumbfounded to find out that they were brother and sister who had been separated in early childhood. And they had been working together there on the assembly line for several months, not knowing they were brother and sister. And that's an incredible story. But when I read it, I thought about this. Well, that's nothing. I know some people who've gone to church for decades and they haven't found out their brother and sister yet. They haven't figured it out. You see, we are not an institution, we are a family. The Bible knows nothing in the New Testament of religious institutions. The church is not a religious institution. The church is the living, breathing body of Christ on earth. And the Lord expects us to interact and conduct ourselves with each other so that we help one another on this journey home. That's what life's all about. Now notice something. Isn't this interesting? What's the very first word in this chapter? Let. Let brotherly love continue. Notice it does not say cause brotherly love. It doesn't say create brotherly love. It says let it continue. Because brotherly love is not something we create. That's been created by God himself. You see, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, and we are not divided by denominational differences or terminologies. There's one family of God. 
And when we gather together, we recognize that we're to let brotherly love continue. Don't grieve it. Don't hinder it. Don't let anything be an obstacle to it. Get everything out of the way to let brotherly love flow through our Christian community. It's a treasure. Guard it. Preserve it. The Bible says, endeavor with everything to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Brotherly love is powerful. As a matter of fact, you know that there's a song in the Bible about the power of brotherly love and community. There really is. It was a hit way back, an oldie. 1000 BC. That's an oldie, right? That's an oldie. I was laughing at Susan the other day. She's found her favorite station. Her favorite station. It's playing all the time. You know what it's called? Oh, this is slick. Mid century. Mid century. <laughs> and I can come home sometimes and she's kind of bebopping and doing some things to the mid century. And I told her, I said, honey, you know, that's not this century. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go over real good, you know. I'm talking 1000 BC. David wrote a psalm saying how beautiful, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. He says it's like the dew that comes down from Mount Hermon in northern Israel. It waters the plain. It causes life to grow. He said it's like, the, it's like the perfume on the garments of the priest in the temple. As they go about worshiping, there's like a perfume. And so this unity of the brothers is like a perfume in the nostrils of God. It's life-giving on the earth. And the psalm ends this, this way. It says, because where there is unity among the brothers and sisters... There, God has commanded his blessing. There, God has commanded his blessing. Friends, I want you to understand, one of God's most powerful forces on this earth is a unified church. A church that is unified in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is a powerful witness. I can't tell you how many times I have had people tell me when I came into the church, I came into West Park, I sensed, I literally sensed a love and a presence of God and a unity. I sensed that and I praise God for that. And we want to preserve that at all costs. My friends... If this church, if this church ever fails on its mission, it will not be because of forces outside. It will not be because of the world or the devil. If we fail, we will fail from the inside out by a lack of love and unity. That's what will bring the church down. Four guiding practices come out of this principle. Brotherly love. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? 
What are we guarding? What are we protecting? What, what do we want to continue to flow? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Four practices of brotherly love. Number one, it's practiced in hospitality. Hospitality. Now you're going to notice in verses 2 through verse 5 and 6 that there is a responsibility and then there's a reason given. A responsibility and then a reason. Here's a responsibility out of brotherly love. Practice hospitality. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now this is important because it doesn't come across in our English Bibles. Brotherly love, what is the word there? The word brotherly love is phile, adelphos, Philadelphia. Hospitality. You know what the word is for hospitality? Philazenos. Philazenos. Here's what it means, literally. Love toward strangers. Love toward strangers. How are we to live expressing brotherly love? By expressing love to strangers. That's hospitality. Love to strangers. It means a, a devotion, a kindness, an interest to people that we do not know whether they're in our family of faith or not. You see, a stranger here doesn't mean someone just that you're not acquainted with. It doesn't mean, in its sense here, that somebody that might be dangerous, you know, stranger danger. What it means here is that this is a person I don't know whether they are in the family of faith or not. And my responsibility is to love them. Love them. They may be outside of the family of God, but listen carefully, they're not outside the love of God. And they may be outside our family of faith, but they shouldn't be outside of our love. That's what is being said here. He says, there's a reason for this. He says, you may be one of those who's helped dignitaries in disguise. Angels unawares. This is probably going back to the story of Abraham and Lot. Three men, you remember, came to visit Abraham. Abraham started preparing a meal for them, and then he began to realize they're not just ordinary men. As a matter of fact, he begins to recognize who one of them is, and that's the Lord himself. And the Lord says, I'm on my way to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah and see if Sodom and Gomorrah are as wicked as I have heard. And immediately Lot's heart goes out to his nephew Lot, who he knows he and his family live down near Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, oh Lord, Lord. He starts sort of bartering with the Lord. Lord, you wouldn't destroy Sodom if there were 50. If you could find 50 righteous people, surely you wouldn't destroy it. And he said, no, I wouldn't for 50. And you maybe know the story. He got 50, 40, 30, 20, finally 10. The Lord says, if I find 10, I'll not destroy it. The Lord departs. The two other men go on the way to Sodom. They come to the city at night. 
and there is Lot. Just as the sun's going down, he's sitting in the temp- he's sitting in the entrance of the city there in the gate, which is a place of civic authority. And how sad that is. Here's a man who was knows God, and he is a relative of Abraham, the friend of God, and he went to just pitch his tent towards Sodom, you know, just better investment opportunities, just better, better place to raise cattle. Yeah, Sodom was a wonderful place to raise cattle, but it was a terrible place to raise kids. And now he's not just there, he's a civic leader sitting in the gate. And these two strangers come. And they say they're going to stay out in the city square at night. He says, oh, no, 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 no. You must, you must come in, you must come in. We'll not go into the sordid story. How that night, men in the city totally given over to every form of wickedness and immorality came beating on the door of Lot's house, demanding that these men be set out for the citizen's pleasure. One of the men stretched out his arm. He blinded those wicked men pounding on the door. They're angels. Those angels got Lot and his daughters wife out literally compelled them made them leave you know the story of Lot's wife looked back and turned to a pillar of salt we won't go on with the rest of the story we find out that yes Lot got out of Sodom but Sodom didn't get out of Lot or his daughter angels unawares These people with hospitality were taking in those who were incredible dignitaries. See, there's something powerful about hospitality. You never know what God might be doing and what might be happening in that person's life through your hospitality. And you see, hospitality, don't, don't misunderstand this, doesn't mean that you just have a room. And anybody who walks through town, you just give them a room. Hospitality is a much broader term. It means love of strangers to you. Love of people who may not be part of your family. You show them love and concern and you want to help in any way that you can. That is a powerful thing because, you know, that is a testimony of God's creation himself because the Bible tells us that every human being is made in the image of God, right? Every human being has worth and every human being has dignity because every human being is made in God's image. And we as a people of God, as we walk through this life, we must be people of love and kindness to those who maybe many don't think should receive that. They're image bearers. But I want you to also know hospitality is a powerful, powerful witness of God's salvation. 
How many countless thousands and thousands of people who have been brought into the family of God by faith because they were first brought into relationship with some member of that family. One of the greatest stories I've ever heard of this is a story of a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book. It's called The Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. And you can look up uh, Rosaria Butterfield on the web. You can get her other writings. You'll hear her testimony. You can listen to her speak. And boy, is her confession a confession of an unlikely convert. But what a story it is of hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in New York. She was a teacher specializing in lesbian studies and queer theory. This was her area of teaching. She had a doctorate in this. She was an agnostic. She had no use for Christians. She made fun of them regularly through her teaching. And she was in a long-term relationship with another professor, another woman on the staff. And she met one day, or was met one day, by an old, older couple, an elderly couple. And they talked to her got acquainted with her. And over a period of time, just saying hi when they passed or speaking to her, they, be, they developed an acquaintance and then they invited her to come to their house. And it didn't take long she found out that they were Christians and her guard was completely up. But they never tried to beat her over the head with a Bible. They never spoke in condemnation in any way. They just became friends. And they invited her to come and spend time with them, introduced her to other friends. And she found out they were churchgoers, of course, and she was so taken aback by this, she wasn't about to go in the church, but she followed them in the car to church. And she would get her coffee and sit in the car and, like a professor, analyze these people who were going into church. She couldn't get it. And so... Finally, they encouraged her, well, would you like to come in sometime? She finally came in. And you know the rest of the story. She was met with love, passion. She heard about the Lord, the glory of God, the singing, the praying, the teaching of the word. And Rosario Butterfield came to faith in Jesus Christ. Incredibly converted. Of course, that had an impact on her educational philosophy. And it had an impact on a relationship that was so precious to her. But that relationship needed to end. And she tells a story of what God did in her life, the unlikely convert. And today, Rosario Butterfield is married to a Presbyterian pastor in Ohio. You know she didn't see that coming, okay? (laughs) She was a stranger. But listen, 
an elderly couple with the love of Jesus in their hearts didn't treat her as strange. She was not one to Christ because she was told she was strange or treated as if she was strange. She wasn't even treated as a visitor. She was welcomed into the house, welcomed into the times of gathering, welcomed to be part of the worship, and she was brought to Christ by the love of strangers. Hospitality is what brought her to the Lord. It's interesting, her latest book, I haven't gotten it yet, is about the power of hospitality. I'd say she knows, wouldn't you? How do we practice brotherly kindness and love? Hospitality. Number two, advocacy. Remember those who are in prison. As though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are in the same body. Now remember, many of these people knew loved ones who had lost their jobs, lost their professions, lost their family members. They'd lost access to the synagogues because they became believers in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And many of them had been put in prison because they couldn't pay their debts because they'd lost their jobs because they were followers of Jesus. And so here is the early church ministering in brotherly love to people who are in prison because of their faith, for their commitment to Jesus. But not just that, they're ministering to those who are being mistreated. They are advocates for those who are in prison. They're advocates for those who are being mistreated. They are living simply the golden rule. And what is that? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And he says this, you treat them as if you were in prison with them. Let your heart go out to them as if you were there in prison. Why? Because you are of the same body. You are of the same body. Friends, listen, prison bars cannot separate the family of God, right? Cannot separate the family of God. And I want us to understand something. I think this is important for us to understand. The gospel is flourishing in the prisons of America. God is not kept out of the prisons. There is a work of God going on in the prisons of America that, quite frankly, is Amazing, because the word of God is not bound. The love of God is not bound. And many times when people find themselves in that cell, they have one place to look and they look up. And they find the one who said, if you seek me, you will find me. And in that prison, they find freedom. They find freedom. They're set free in prison. How sad it is that there are many Christians who are not in prison physically, but we're in prison spiritually. When it comes to our compassion, when it comes to our compassion, 
for some believers, it's like we live in solitary confinement. Because all we're interested in and concerned about is our own solitary needs. But brotherly love, brotherly love is not bound by any barriers. It flows right through those. I'm going to tell you, my friends, the Bible says, break out of your own jail. Break out of your own confining Lack of compassion and let that flow freely. What did I pray right before we received the offering? Freely we have received. Freely what? Give. The Bible says in Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Let me say that again. Galatians 6.10. Let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, here's the question. Does that mean, does that mean you have to seek to do good to everybody? No. You don't have to seek to do good to everybody. There's only three kinds of people you have to seek their good. Only three kinds. Seek the good of the people who are like you. Seek the good of the people who are not like you. And seek the good of the people who don't like you. (laughs) Other than that, you don't have to seek anybody's good. Just seek the good of the people who are like you. And the people who are unlike you. And yes, the Lord Jesus said, seek the good of people who don't even like you. Just like the Lord sought our good when we didn't like him. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. Four guiding principles. Hospitality. Advocacy. Let me give you a third one quickly. Fidelity. We need to help each other with fidelity. What kind of fidelity? Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor... Among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marital fidelity. Let marriage be held in honor. Marriage should be held in the highest honor among God's people. Why? Because marriage is a creation of God. Marriage is not a man-made institution. Marriage is a God-made institution. God came up with the first marriage plan. He orchestrated the first service. He even escorted the bride down the aisle through the garden to Adam. And he performed the ceremony. It's a creation of God. But listen carefully. Marriage is a covenant with God. It is a marriage covenant. It's holy. Two people are united in a holy covenant of marriage. Marriage is God's creation. Marriage is a covenant with God. Friends, listen carefully. You cannot divorce God from marriage. God cannot be divorced from marriage. 
Marital fidelity requires something. It requires sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Notice that word undefiled. That's interesting. The marriage bed undefiled. The word undefiled there is usually a word that's associated with worship. It's associated with the temple. Things which are undefiled offered to God. What does this mean? What does it mean when it says, let the marriage bed be undefiled? Here's what it means. Three words in English. Sex is sacred. Sex is sacred. Sex is God's gift. God created sex. He is the one who planned it. It's God's gift. Sex is God's gift, but it's a particular kind of gift. God gives sex as a marriage gift, a wedding gift, to people who are united in a covenant together. And sex is to be the ultimate expression of the union of two people who are united in God in marriage. It is only for those who are in marriage. Sex outside of marriage is outside of God's will. And I know saying that in this culture in which we live is as corny as a cornfield in Kansas in August. And people will look at you like, for real? But my friend, God, who created sex and created marriage, created sex for marriage, and he has clearly said that sex outside of God's marriage covenant is outside of his will. And if it is practiced outside of his will, it will bring judgment. Verse 4, For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexually immoral means a broad spectrum of sexual practices outside of marriage. Adultery means the violation of a marriage covenant. God will judge. Friends, God will judge. I want you to know that's the Supreme Court decision. There's only one Supreme Court. One Supreme Court. There's one justice on the Supreme Court. One judge. He confirmed himself. He doesn't need confirmed. He's not asked us to confirm him or confirm his verdicts. He just pronounces them. And they're good because he's good. And when God says something is out of bounds, it's because he's got something better that's in bounds. God just says no to something to say yes to something that's better. God knows what he's doing. God knows a thing or two. He's rendered his verdict. Sexual immorality and marital infidelity will be judged. And friends, we understand God's a forgiving God. Yes, and I know I'm speaking to many, many people who have known 
the failure and the heartache that's in this area. But you know what I found out? I have found out over the years, the people who have experienced the heartache of moral failure and marital failure, they're the people who want me to speak the most clearly about it because they don't want anybody to go through that kind of pain. They don't want anybody else to know that. Marriage is sacred, so sex is sacred. It's sacred to God, and it should be sacred to us. And the last practice, hospitality, advocacy, fidelity, and God wants us to live in liberty. Liberty, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, right? Verse 4, freedom. Verse 5, rather, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. He's talking here about money, free from the love of money. Someone as well said that money is a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. That's determined not by the amount of money that you have, You know what? The amount of the money is not the issue. It's your attitude toward money that's the issue. It's the attitude. Keep your life free. You see that? Free. Keep your life free. Free from what? Free from money? (laughs) Some of you say, no problem there. It runs for me. (laughs) Money and I have never been able to get together very well. (laughs) No. It's free from what? The love of money. Money is not the root of all evil. God never said that. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And he that pursues that, she that pursues a life of loving money is going to pierce himself, herself through with many sorrows and fall into a trap of the devil. Keep yourself. Be on constant guard against the love of money. How do you stay free from the love of money? You focus on something greater, of greater value. How do you stay free from the love of money? you got to focus on something that has greater value. What has greater value than money? The greatest freedom of all. Contentment. The richest person is the person who has all she wants. All he wants. If you need a hundred more dollars to make you content, guess what? You won't be content when the hundred comes. You won't be content with a thousand, a million. Trust me. Trust me. Be content with what you have. That's Freedom. And what's your treasure? Hey, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, you're richer than the richest person in the world. Why? Because you found the pearl of great price. You found the treasure in the field. You found the inheritance, or you should say, you've been found. (laughs) Jesus Christ. If you have Christ... You have everything because everything is Christ. He inherits it all. You inherit him. You are co-inheritors with all things. Rich 
And because we're rich, we can rest. So we can confidently say, because the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your credit score can't take God Almighty from you. Failure to meet your mortgage is not a failure of God loving you. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The eternal God is our refuge. And around us are his everlasting arms. Amen.